Take a network break. We're breaking out the extra virtual donuts to welcome our special guest analyst, Keith Townsend, and we've got stories today on VMworld, Arista, Juniper, and more. Today's show is sponsored in part by Service Express. They are leaders in third-party data center maintenance. You can lower your post-warranty support costs, take control of your hardware refresh cycle, and extend the life of your server, storage, and network equipment. Visit serviceexpress.com slash packetpushers to learn how you can win a $100 Amazon gift card. That's serviceexpress.com slash packetpushers. And stay tuned after the news for a sponsored Tech Bytes podcast with NetMotion. We're going to discuss how NetMotion integrates the traditional remote access VPN with a software-defined perimeter and zero-trust access. So stay tuned for that. Uh, we've got some news, but let's first cover a couple of FUs, a follow-up. Uh, in a recent episode, we talked about Juniper's newest 400-gig data center switch. We mentioned that the Broadcom chipset supports programmability using the MPL language. Uh, Greg, you and I contrasted that with programmable ASICs and the P4 language, and Juniper contacted us to note two things. First, Trident 4 is highly programmable and can do flexible pipeline processing, such as NAT translation or packet filtering. And second, Juniper's intention isn't that enterprises, service providers, or cloud customers are necessarily going to program this chip themselves. Juniper wrote to us, quote, what programmable merchant silicon means for the customer is that our engineers, meaning Juniper's engineers, can introduce new forwarding capabilities based on evolving customer needs without a dependency or time for the silicon to natively support. That doesn't sound exciting at all. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, I'm I, guys. You, I've, you, you've had me on the show before. Yes. I'm super excited about P4 and uh, Telfino, Intel Smart Move. Uh, with all of the stuff coming out of VMware, and I'm a VMware guy. Uh -huh. VM, coming out of yeah. VMworld, and I'm a VMware guy. Uh, yeah, this this doesn't sound exciting at all. So it is quite exciting in a sense that um, there's a lot of evolution going on for service provider networking in terms of evolution around things like segment routing, IPv6, um, and VXLAN, EVPN type stuff and the different encapsulations so that when traffic is trunked across those backbones, in the past, the silicon used to be hardwired, and this ability to have programmable means that if they define a new packet format or if they define new ways of operation, if they want to do NAT because a packet comes out of an eVPN tunnel, they can rewrite the code and reprogram and be able to adapt to some lesser or greater extent. Now, it has to be said that the Trident 4 is highly programmable compared to the Trident 3 or the Trident 2, but is nowhere near as programmable as, say, the Barefoot, for example, or other chipsets in its class. Broadcom uh, uh, chipsets tend towards uh, the lower cost end or the simpler end, and their capabilities in the programmably tend to be limited as they focus on different features in the product. However, the Trident 4 is the lowest or the cheapest of the chipsets. There's Trident, then there's Tomahawk, then there's Jericho. And the Trident 4 is a low-cost edge networking capability. So, yes, I agree. Um, programmable merchant silicon means that uh, Junos can be adapted to implement new forwarding capabilities. And it's also interesting, Drew, that they said that enterprises probably wouldn't program it. I agree with that. There's a, there are automations, yeah. Yeah. and there are automations that people will implement, and this is not one of them. Yeah, I think their largest point was that, for the most part, most folks aren't going to look for the kind of programmability you'd want out of a, a Tofino or a P4. That's more the hyperscalers who are looking yeah. to do that. Your typical enterprise customer isn't necessarily going to get down into the guts of the ASIC, but Juniper saying if a customer wants some kind of special capability, Juniper has the capability to maybe deliver that to them yeah. well, ahead of a, a chip yeah, you, and my point would be is that you wouldn't do programmable forwarding on a Trident 4. It's just not that chipset. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so you might on a Tomahawk on or a, yeah. Question on Sorry, that, Greg. The, yeah. I, I absolutely agree. Enterprises wouldn't do programmable anything on at, at the ASIC level or FPGA for uh, a top of right switch or network device. But as we look at these open source programs around telemetry data, moving services out to the edge, uh, Kubernetes uh, is a big buzzword that encompasses a lot of things. <laughs> Do you see hmm. like a, a active community around doing these low level uh, packet inspections, uh, extensions from these FPGAs? Um, so these are the ASICs inside the switches, and right. there was an attempt in years gone by to make the physical network become part of the overlay, and that doesn't seem to have gotten traction. I pretty much predicted that it wouldn't. Uh, the uh, iteration cycle around software is so different from the hardware, and if you're using, even with programmable ASICs, it's much more complicated. You have different APIs, and you have to have its custom code, whereas most of the people who are doing what 
passes for networking or the excuse for networking that Kubernetes have is just fiddling around with the Linux IP stack, right? Whether they're using yep. eBPF or DPDK or, you know, some sort of acceleration. But at the end of the day, it's just in Linux. They're actually not. And none of those people, none of the Kubernetes people want to even think about hardware. They don't care about CPUs. They don't care about memory modules. They don't care. And as we'll talk about later in the show with VMworld, they are suddenly going to start caring. Um, and it's possible that we could see a transition, but I doubt it. I think most of the people who develop code at the higher layers are incapable of imagining architectures that are hardware integrated. Hmm. All right, uh, let's move on. We've also got a follow-up from Cumulus uh, about the Broadcom Cumulus split. This is from a Cumulus source, and I'll just read the FU. On Network Break 302, it was mentioned that the Cumulus Broadcom split was for the Cumulus 4.0 release. This is an older release, and nothing is retroactively changing. Drew also mentioned a number of platforms not being supported in the 4.0 release, that's hardware platforms, as an indicator of the Broadcom relationship. But all the platforms that were not carried forward were old power PC-based CPUs, which was no longer supported natively in Debian 10, which Cumulus 4.x as a distro of, so support for those platforms was dropped. Uh, this is a reference to a hardware compatibility list that I looked at uh, where mm, I saw a number yeah. of Broadcom platforms no longer supporting 4.0, so yeah, that was my mistake. Yeah, and I, the discussions I've had around Cumulus is that they will continue to support and adapt the Cumulus Linux, but any uh, wherever they touch the, the Broadcom ASIC interfaces, they're frozen out of that and uh -huh. they can't go back and support those. So there's two issues here, I think. There's one where we said Cumulus is unsupported. That's not true. The Cumulus Linux part is unsupported, but where the Linux talks to the ASIC, that's a proprietary API. Cumulus chose to use a proprietary API and, and to license it instead of using the open API, and they've lost access to that and can't change any of that. And then, as you say, uh, older Linuxes were based on older CPU architectures. And the Power PC, that idea that uh, switches used to have not Intel CPUs was very fond of in the early days. A lot of networking manufacturers didn't want to buy Intel CPUs because they wanted cheaper ones. Uh -huh. They didn't really care about what customers wanted. They just wanted to get cheaper equipment. And, yeah, so time passed on. So as always, we appreciate uh, commentary, corrections, follow-up. If you've got something to say, you can go to packetpushers.net slash FU. That FU is for follow-up, uh, and we're happy to issue corrections, comments uh, where necessary. All right, let's dive into the news. we got a lot to get through first. VMworld 2020 took place as a virtual event, generated lots of VMware news, and we're going to cover a few specific stories. Let's start with the announcement of Project Monterey. Project Monterey's goal is to offer new hardware and software architectures for the data center, the cloud, and the edge. And specifically, VMware's cloud foundation is going to support SmartNICs, meaning that you can offload things like NSX and vSAN functions on the SmartNIC and leave the CPU free for compute tasks. Um, is there an echo in here, Drew? Is there something like, you know, we've been talking for the last two months about, you know, how smart NICs are on the rise. I think I've been saying for nearly a year that smart NICs are going to play a big part in the future. And uh, just excuse me while I go over here and pat myself on the back, you know. <laughs> Initiate gloating protocol. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, so this is the concept uh, that we've talked about substantially over the last eight weeks, which is that there is a post-CPU transition coming in server hardware. And we know that Intel hasn't been able to iterate its CPUs at speed. AMD has been able to come up with the epic and outperform Intel. NVIDIA is entering the market with its ARM CPUs. You've got other companies, Marvell's got ARM CPUs that they're targeting at the server. You've seen AWS talking about its um, bare metal servers, and they are outperforming the Intels for some tasks. And part of those architectures, part of the success of ARM will be driven not by the performance of the CPU, but by the ability to use external processes to do uh, performance, to increase the performance. So GPUs for machine learning, TPUs for AI, uh, and data processing units or smart NICs um, to, to offload activity from the CPU and then prove the overall throughput. So this is this idea that smart NICs are basically the, the the missing leg. And it's interesting that servers have finally discovered networking. So <laughs> this this is actually nothing new. Uh, yeah. VMware is trailing, believe it or not, a little bit in this area because this is something that AWS has been doing for the past two or three years now mm -hmm. with this That's Nitro right. system. Uh, they've extended their hypervisor to uh, smart NICs, their custom-made silicon smart NIC that they, they, they've out 
offloaded storage, networking, and other um, FPGA, DPU-friendly actions and just increase the the overall efficiency of their data centers. So obviously, hyperscalers benefit from this uh, truly. Uh, and to credit VMware, they showed this off maybe about a year and a half, two years ago, they showed this to me where they were running ESXi on a smart NIC. Uh, Greg, I think hopefully we'll get into yeah. a little bit of about how important this is to VMware's uh, telco play. Uh, they just recently yeah. uh, moved one of their senior staff engineers, Brian Lau, who came over as part of the Heptio uh, acquisition, gave him a hefty title, which, which in VMware is a really big deal, <laughs> principal uh, hmm. engineer over in the telco side of the business. So yeah. that just shows that I think VMware has very, very high expectations for the smart NIC within their overall architecture. One thing, I, I do want to poke that uh, telco idea, Keith, a little bit. I just want to say one thing. I think um, we've heard a lot from VMware about pushing more uh, security features right onto the host as close to the workload as possible. Um, NSX obviously doing networking right on the host. So adding all of these functions, a, a load balancer, a firewall, uh, an IPS, onto the host while you're also trying to do your regular compute functions. Obviously, it makes sense if you can move that onto a smart NIC, and that allows that helps VMware with this message of their quote-unquote intrinsic security by having more security capabilities closer to the workload, but you need some hardware support for that. But I would like to dig in what you see as their telco play here with this uh, Project Monterey, Keith. Well, one of VMware's, uh, I think, structural problems is their licensing, uh, how they license and package VMware vSphere. Telcos don't buy thousands of licensing cores for VMware vSphere, and VMware can't report back to the market that ESXi licensing costs are uh, getting watered down because they're going after the telco. This enables them to kind of have the best of both worlds. They can have special licensing for smart NICs. Uh, it can be telco friendly and they can kind of sell the telco on this dream that telcos have never been able to fulfill, which is giving them a control plane in which they can resell uh, the software layer, the control plane or the cloud layer of the smart NIC to third parties like software developers, et cetera. Yeah. At a big sporting event, what, what game can you think of? What, how, can you, how can you gamify a sporting event from a telco perspective uh, or at least telco capability? Yeah. So it's a pretty exciting concept. Concept? Execution? Uh, you know what? VMware's danced with telcos for the past few years and just hasn't really been able to get anything, any real traction. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a few things there. This is a follow-up exercise. This is not an innovation. Um, I'll put an article straight into the show notes. Ericsson has been talking about how they integrate their packet core firewalls into the user plane, and they're talking about how they already have in their platform the ability to put firewalls into the system and accelerate them using uh, smart NICs. And that's something that Nokia and Ericsson and other 5G players have been doing for a number of years. So in this sense, this move is a catch-up if you're pitching it to service providers. For enterprises, um, Cisco has been moving in this space for a while. I don't, I don't think Cisco's done a good job of selling this, but the VIC, which is the virtual interface card inside their UCS servers, is a smart NIC, but they haven't done a good job of selling it as something that actually accelerates performance. Yeah. All they've really done is said, we converge storage and networking onto the same NIC but it was originally designed. So the same people behind Pensando designed UCS and pretty much the only um, new piece of a UCS server was the VIC and the base, uh, the BMC, um, the base management, management controller. controller. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So cool. it's not new. And I think the interesting part here is that the, a, the Pensando team turned around and basically did the same thing as they did with Cisco and repackaged it differently. And now they're partnered with HPE. Um, although their NIC doesn't appear to be an accelerator, it's just a uh, programmable NIC. So they may have to very quickly reiterate their hardware to come up with the performance they need here. Yeah, and this is, I think, a missed opportunity by Cisco, HPE, and VMware competitors okay. in general. The difference is with VMware, VMware is the data center. So when you're looking at the HCI and networking stack, the load of VMware Cloud Foundation on your server x86 uh, chassis is not meant, mm. is not 
small is you in some cases you know you're you're losing 30 anywhere from 20 to 30 percent of uh server performance if you listen to vmware competitors mm -hmm. uh because of yeah. nsx vsan etc right. you move that off to the smart nick now enterprises are getting the benefits of smart nicks without actually doing anything because esxi and vSphere and and VMware Cloud Foundation is just becoming more efficient without customers doing anything. You know, Greg, in enterprise, we hmm. love not having to have to do any engineering to get better. <laughs> well, we'll, well, well, we think we that. do. We think we do, but we don't, right? We we think we're really clever and smart, but really all you're doing is buying boxes of cereal off the shelf. And maybe at best you're mixing two boxes of cereal to give yourself a unique flavor. Um, but the, I mean, that's the type of engineering we do in the enterprise, at least on the customer exactly. side. That's right. So, you know, the, the whole point here is that this idea of SmartNICs is not new. F5 networks, Citrix, Netscalers, Palo Alto firewalls all use merchant silicon inside their boxes. And most of them are just a bog standard x86 pattern motherboard straight off the Intel production line. And they drop a fancy nick into it. And then those operating systems that they use, you know, we used to have those custom operating systems, they wrote drivers to do acceleration in the NIC. So forwarding, blocking, rewriting, NAT, you know, translation, all that stuff was just done on a fancy NIC. So this is far from new. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how this shakes out. Does HPE and Cisco go and buy smart NIC companies now? Do we get an, or do they start building a merchant silicon strategy where we start seeing, oh, they're using a smart NIC with a chip from Marvell? Do we see Accolade be acquired by Cisco so that they've got that technology in-house? And that some of these companies have done those types of things. And some of these smart NIC makers have been acquired by other players. But the really key part here is this is not an enterprise technology per se. This is a telco technology because the telcos have got this massive amount of money around 5G spending. We're talking something in the order of half a trillion dollars over the next five to 10 years. And they're putting plays together. And VMware's got a challenge on its hands because it thought it was going to be able to go out there and pitch its uh, vSphere-type applications to the pots where the, where the mobile phone towers would come down and they would be able to put all the 5G software into them. And then Microsoft came along and bought uh, a company, a 5G company, MetaSwitch. And what they actually bought was the entire application stack. MetaSwitch is an entire application stack for 5G uh, RAN networks. And they're going to run most of it from the cloud. AWS is now in the same space. So VMware can't sit back and take time for the space to evolve, wait for it to reach a place of stability and then enter the market knowing what the market looks like. They're actually going to have to take real risks here and make um, commitments into software and products that actually may or may not succeed. And that's a real risk for them because VMware has a reputation of winning consistently and repeatedly. And what they actually do is they don't win, they just follow last. So once the market is flat and defined, they enter into that market. Um, the last innovation they really had was when they bought NSX. But even then, that was a pretty clear you know, requirement in the business. If they wanted to defeat Cisco, and Joe Tucci at EMC at the time knew that um, he wanted to get Cisco out of his customers because he saw Cisco moving in going muscling in on his storage and his VMware business. And he got NSX and put it into VMware as a way of getting Cisco out. That was a betrayal of Cisco at that time. But it's certainly the story is, as it's played out, is absolutely correct. NSX is the operating system of the enterprise data center. But for telcos, uh, and you pointed it out very well, Keith, which is the pricing model of VMware has to go up against open source solutions, right. open RAN, a wide range, it has to compete against the cloud players, so Azure and AWS, and it also has to compete against incumbents, Ericsson and Nokia. VMware is not in any way guaranteed to win in that market. One thing that's really interesting about this is the ability to run bare metal workloads and manage those bare metal workloads. And I, I don't I don't follow the space enough to know if Ericsson and the likes uh, offer similar capability, but VMware bringing kind of its enterprise know-how to the telco space, leaning into that and, you know, moving folks like Brian Lau over into this group and helping mm. telcos understand how they can generate more revenue per device is is, is a critical, critical it is. point. It Whether is. or not telcos can execute on it, that's a whole different thing, but the capability is there. 
comes down to 5G. And the point of 5G is not faster or better services to customers. That's all. And that's just an accident. The fact that 5G has more spectrum and greater density is fine. The real innovation around 5G is going to be the transition from the 3G, 4G backend stack, the internal software and hardware, to a pure software model. And that transition is an opportunity for VMware to grow. And if they don't, they get stuck in the enterprise. And this is their only chance to sort of get into the service provider market. So they'll be throwing a lot of resources. And keep in mind, one thing about VMware, there are people out there who've got VMware skills. There are not people out there with other people's skills. So that don't ever underestimate the fact that, you know, having access to resources is a win, is it can be a competitive advantage. Yeah, I just wanted to round it out by saying the SmartNIC partners that uh, VMware announced initially include Intel, NVIDIA through via Mellanox and ARM, and Pensando. Uh, and on the server side, Dell, HP, and Lenovo are going to be the partners there. Uh, links in the show notes if you want to find out more. We've got other VMware news. They announced they're acquiring SaltStack. SaltStack is a configuration management software for infrastructure automation. You can use SaltStack on-prem and in the clouds. It's going to be integrated with VMware's vRealize platform. This is really interesting from the point of view that there was four um, automation tool sets back in the day, Puppet, Chef, Ansible, and SaltStack. We saw Chef sort of get sold to uh, Progress Software. It was sort of seen as an end-of-life sale, and they're going to go take it into rent extraction mode. Puppet seems to have faded away and really leaves Ansible and SaltStack standing in the software. And we've also seen the emergence of Terraform. Right from HashiCorp as becoming very popular amongst public cloud provisioning. I see this as VMware saying, we don't want to defend on Terraform. We want to have our own software automation system to configure the software. Um, and also, I think the key part about what SaltStack was doing was they were mature enough in their product cycle to have started SecOps. So SaltStack particularly has a lot of security operations functions in terms of uh, configuration normalization, looking for deviations, monitoring configuration status, you know, and if somebody starts configuring stuff and SaltStack detects a variation from template, it'll start to throw up security alerts. Mm -hmm. Whereas HashiCorp, a lot earlier, it's still only, HashiCorp hasn't even reached point one, hasn't even reached a 1.0 release. So I see this as a way of taking back control of that software automation and, they say they're going to keep the open source project going. What did you think, Keith? Yeah, I thought this was an interesting uh, purchase because vRealize is actually all of that already just in the proprietary stack. The problem with that is we know is that people don't adopt these types of automation tools uh, and testing tools to implement beyond uh, the intended closed proprietary solution. So you're not going to take your vRealize and apply vRealize scripts to networking, storage, mm. et cetera, that's outside of the VMware world. Uh, so in practice, people just weren't using this for uh, enterprise-wide automation. Uh -huh. SaltStack yeah. buys VMware yeah. uh, opportunity to, to uh, become more relevant outside of that, that vSphere ecosystem. So instead of just worrying about configuring your VM and your servers, you can now use SaltStack to extend into storage, networking, et cetera. That's what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, I'm not going to go and use, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to train my staff or pay my staff to learn vRealize to automate AWS. That right. That just yes. doesn't make sense. Particularly the public the, cloud. I'm yeah, going to send sure. them to Terraform, et cetera, et cetera. But SaltStack, oh, okay. Yeah. VMware, this, this is a, this gets VMware a lot more interesting sales call meetings. Yeah, I feel like having a tool like this in its back pocket, even though it already has vRealize, is a signal that VMware is serious about infrastructure as code uh, and may help convince some of the folks who prefer open source uh, or more independent tooling to to get a little bit more comfortable or get, get up next to VMware a little bit more. They, VMware has a lot of work to do to attract developers and the DevOps kind of folks uh, to its platform, and maybe this is a hook. Yeah. I think also, too, it's an admission that uh, vRealize was really not successful. Um, <laughs> nobody really likes it. It's got a pretty poor reputation amongst people in the industry, and this might be a chance to say, yeah, well, you know, it was okay. Let's just move on <laughs> and without admitting yeah. defeat. There's a lot of yeah. VMware doesn't like to admit that it failed at things, and this is a very good choice of product to move on from vRealize, I think. It's got a lot of, uh, a lot of capabilities, and people will like it. I agree. 
Yeah. Uh, and just to extend that, as you mentioned, uh, it was either Greg or Keith that VMware is committing to support the open source projects and the open source community that underlies SaltStack, even as they tie it into vRealize. They also said that vRealize has uh, hooks into, uh, let's see, what was it? Uh, Puppet, Ansible, and Terraform. And they are going to uh, continue that support as well for third party products. Not that they have much Java choice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not because we want to, <laughs> just because we have to. Yeah. Well, I have to because that's the product, you know. Yeah. All right. Two more VMworld stories before we move on. First, this year's VMworld de debuted a professional development track where attendees could participate in sessions on what are traditionally labeled as soft skills. So things like presentation, career development, and so on. And Greg, you wanted to call this out in particular. Yeah. Um, I'm not opposed to professional development in any form. And I certainly think that people should. I am less convinced that um, an IT vendor is the right forum for um, getting professional development. This seems to be something that you'd be really smart at, Keith, because you've been into management consulting. Um, you know, this is not a technology track. This is not a product track. This is a people and management track, and they're trying to offer people presentation skills or skills for transformation or effective evangelism was actually one cause, which is kind of disgusting. Why would you want to do professional development in evangelism? Um <laughs> Maybe that's just me. Or I don't know. Oh, but, I had a uh, whole wonderful certification track on technology yeah. evangelism. I it just strikes me that, yes, this training is certainly going to be useful for people who struggle with soft skills, but is it really necessary for an IT vendor to offer this? I just wonder if you had any reflections. Yeah, so this is something I've talked about an awful lot, actually. And, uh, and I think uh, it comes with a mixed bag. The professionals are just not getting this training. Like IT professionals aren't getting this training and the writing is on the wall. In order for you to be successful in your career, you just can't get certified in technical things anymore. You have to have a broader view of the business. You have to add value in a different way. Within the VMware V expert community, we talk about, you know, where how 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 do you create the next Keith Townsend, someone who came up from the community and mm -hmm. did something that wasn't a tech that's doing something that's not a technical job, but still aligned to it. So the effect of evangelism is a uh, career route for that. But how do you how do you learn how to be, there's not, I'm not teaching a course on how to become Keith Townsend, you know. <laughs> you got to leave that to VMware. Yeah. How do you lead a team? How do you team. inspire an executive to do what you want? How do, I call this leading from the bottom. As and a, it's exactly what it is. And it's, it's, uh, it's, and VMware is, is I think bright to do this because, uh, you know, just like the Cisco community, the VMware community is fiercely loyal to the vendor brand. And when you train uh, these broader thinking people to think narrowly in the way that VMware wants you to think about influencing evangelism, career development, presentation skills, you're slanted yeah. towards oh. VMware to help influence decisions. So this is, yes. you know, definitely a value add, but be careful as you're being indoctrinated into, you know, how these IT vendors want you to think. Yeah, that was my concern is you'd be better off at a business school for three months or, you know, or getting involved with your local business school who'll teach you generic skills of professional development, exactly the same as this, but without any of the slant. And to be honest, these sorts of skills that they're putting together in a two-day track is really not sufficient. I think that it needs to be done effectively in a disciplined environment. I'm not sure that this is, I'm not saying it's not, it's wrong. I just think it would be better left alone and separate from a, uh, a sales conference effectively. I think, I think it's, I think it offers some value. Uh, I looked over some of the speakers. One of the speakers is, uh, someone that I had at my virtual event. Uh, I know the course that she presented. So that made me, it encouraged me. I had a conversation with her offline and talked mm -hmm. about the engagement model with VMware, you know, how much were they involved in her, content they didn't change it at all so some of it was strictly hey you know what let's let's get some true experts but i absolutely agree that a half an hour 45 minute two-day track is not enough the, the the you have to really as much as you invest into your technical skill you have to invest into these uh personal i call it people skills yeah and uh, sure. a sales conference is a good way to kind of understand, do a gap analysis, understand what you don't mm -hmm. know, but not yeah. enough to, to get what you need to 
further your career. Uh, one more story before we move on from VMware. Uh, Keith, you had posted a comment to Twitter noting that while VMworld, as a virtual event, had over 100,000 registered attendees, you didn't see as much conversation generated as you did with in-person events and conversation, meaning like Twitter and, and social media kind of conversations. Yeah, I'm getting to the point that we should just blow up virtual events altogether. The, they don't work. Uh, hmm. I don't think they're doing what they're meant to do. VMworld is easily my most active conference, and this was just kind of a hmm. On, on social media, I didn't see any kind of any kind of real engagement. It was me and maybe Stu Miniman from the Cube <laughs> talking, and that was, <laughs> that was it. I actually think that's a good thing. I really do. I I think that there's a few things going on here. One is that uh, the use of social media to amplify an event became a corrupting influence, promoted this idea that being at the conference was an elite special thing, and it's not, and it turned it into a holiday for kids running around playing games. You know, go and see the, do the booth run and get, you know, if you visit 20 booths, you get a free blow-up hammer or something like that. And I'm not convinced that social media coverage of conferences will sound or desirable. I, I, I can only gauge what I can in my immediate circle, as I talk to customers here locally in Chicago, as I talk to people, is just, you know, VMworld just wasn't on their radar. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things to that. One is um, when you're not in the bubble of an actual physical event, you can get pulled away by other things. You know, I, I meant to watch the first day keynote. I didn't because I had a meeting. Uh, so if folks have meetings ahead of behind, you know, other events, it's going to distract their attention. Second, we're in a pandemic in the United States. There's also an election that's eating up a lot of oxygen. So from a social media perspective, you're competing with that, which is hard to compete against. Um, hmm. So I'm curious to see what the marketing folks in these organizations think about live versus virtual events in terms of, are they getting the bang for the buck around engagement uh, and message spread that they, they, hmm. they get compared to a live event? Well, they also didn't have the forcing function. Most of these conferences have a team of social media people giving away prizes and presents and having a leaderboard of who can tweet right. the most, <laughs> you know, and it's, and most of the noise that came out of those conferences, Keith, was just trash, was just people randomly tweeting photos every 10 minutes just because they would win a free drone at the end of the, of the two days. Absolutely. And I think one thing that all of these vendors need to figure out, and I think Microsoft probably did it the best, Consistently, all the attendees, most of the attendees that I've talked to have said they missed the ability to talk to other attendees right. during a session. Right. Yeah. We have to be able to figure out as, as an industry how to create that connecting tissue that if, uh, if we're joint in a session together, I should be able to comment to you sitting next to me. Right. about what's happening. Right. At my virtual event, I was able to do that and people loved it, but it was only 500 people. It was not 100,000 people. So I don't have to worry about the internet big eye coming and infiltrating my event. Hmm. Yeah, more to talk about with virtual events going forward, but let's move on. Our sponsor today is Service Express. Don't let the OEM swipe your IT budget. If buying new data center hardware isn't an option, consider third-party maintenance. You can lower your support costs, extend the life of your equipment, and save your IT budget. Refresh your service, not your hardware. Key features include real-time hardware issue alerts, automated ticketing, 30-minute engineer callback, dedicated local primary and secondary engineers, and a 97% first-trip repair success rate. Visit serviceexpress.com slash packetpushers. You can learn how to win a $100 Amazon gift card. That's serviceexpress.com slash packetpushers. All right, some non-VMware news. First, Juniper Networks has announced it's going to acquire NetRounds for an undisclosed amount. NetRounds offers software and services to help service providers and large enterprises make sure that their configured services are up and performing as they should be. It combines active testing with ongoing monitoring. So continuing our coverage of analytics and visibility products and my long-standing prediction that analytics and visibility will be the thing for 2020, I'm still winning. Oh, God, this, my back's starting to hurt. With all, the, all the padding of yourself that you're doing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so NetRounds is a maker of hardware and software probes that you put around the network and then they will perform synthetic transactions and then the data then flows up into a central controller which then lets you monitor the network performance and the application performance and the user experience independently of the network itself and independently of the user. That's very important for service providers. Um, and I think the interesting, most interesting thing about this is this is a shift from analytics in the network. So mostly for the last 
for the last year or so, we've been interested in seeing vendors talk about, oh, you can do the analytics in the network. You can use our programmability features to put a tag and we'll track it. Or they've been, uh, you know, companies like Kentec have been doing flow data collection, or we've seen companies doing network data recorders, you know, the extra hops who've been collecting all the packets and then analyzing it. This is the other way to do that. Um, and you put the probes around and let them play. And this makes sense to me. If you get in, if you're a company doing managed networks, so if you're giving uh, somebody like Ericsson or Samsung outsourcing the contract to operate the network, maybe you put this in the network to monitor the service and uh -huh. to give you an independent play. And Juniper would like to be able to sell that product to the customers that like it. And it also gives you the ability so that if you've got a Juniper operated network to add this to the Contrail, you know, analytics and services platform, and check how your network is working. You can have a separate compliance team validating that the network's performing. Yeah. So not an not a not an unsurprising move. And uh, NetRounds has been a regular sponsor of the show, so you can get into hearing more about them if you're interested. Yeah, I think it's a sensible acquisition. Juniper fits nicely into their service provider portfolio. Uh, we also yeah. have some other acquisition news, this time from Arista. The company announced the acquisition of Awake Security. This is a network detection and response company, also for an undisclosed amount. Uh, essentially, Awake performs packet capture on-premises and in the cloud, analyzes the packet data to map out applications and services in your environment, how they're interacting, and then looks for threat behavior. Not often we see Arista spending money, and it's been a no. bit of a boom season for them to actually buy startups, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so apparently the story with this one is that Awake Security was a big switch partner, and it seems likely that they um, touched base with them as part of that. As a network detection and response company, the way that uh, Awake Security works is they do packet uh, collection. So they capture all the packet data, feed it into an engine, and, of course, these days it's called artificial intelligence. It used to be called something else. <laughs> uh, so the idea is, is that you've got the if you've got a big mon, which is setting up the visibility fabric to collect the data, it would have fed into Awake Security to give you a network data recorder and analysis. Uh, some of the key features around this network detection and response space, which everybody's buying this year. This is probably the fourth or fifth acquisition we've talked about on the show. Captures the full packets data so you can build situation awareness of devices, users, applications. You can start to do behavioral threat detection by using AI techniques, Drew. AI techniques. <laughs> Got to have that AI. And federated machine learning. And, uh, and the, perhaps the bigger part here is that when you use network detection response or when you're doing packet capture, you can actually replay the packets yes. back later. So that means you can do session replay or attack replay or deep dive into what happened after the fact. And that is the value of these NDR tools as opposed to other tools. Yeah, I think security is a good adjacent market for Arista to get into to help grow its enterprise business. Uh, NDR aligns with its networking expertise. Juniper has been making a meal out of missed AI uh, and moving to extend AI throughout the Juniper portfolio. This acquisition now lets Arista start to tell an AI story as well as much as we may roll our eyes a little bit at uh, the AI infusion, but it's it's happening and it's there. Yeah, for sure. And uh, Arista, of course, is also announcing some other stuff around their cognitive unified edge. Arista just loves to have a, a fancy name for what everybody else calls the campus or the wired network, and they <laughs> call it the confusing. cognitive unified edge. Yes. <laughs> it is confusing. Uh, they've released a bunch of um, upgrades to the unified edge. Uh, the, probably the main one here is they've got a bunch of new APs out there. Uh, the, the key thing about these APs is that they're cheaper. That in, so instead of having a full suite of high-quality radios, instead of six radios, they've got four radio APs were coming in at a lower price point. And then they've also done some software adaptation of them to turn them into um, sort of SD-WAN type functionality. That is, if you're using an Arista AP and you sell it into somebody's home, they'll start monitoring the Wi-Fi and telling you that if the Wi-Fi is playing up, I am not sure this is a winning strategy, Drew. You were on the call and I expressed some concern. I think hardware-dependent analytics for users at the edge of the network is probably not a winning strategy in my view. We've seen a lot of other companies doing software-defined perimeter do similar things, and that seems to make more sense to me. I mean, if you don't have a software agent to sell them, you've got an access point, you sell them the access point. But I take your point. Yes, you're a little bit more limited in what you can do. Yeah, no, it's still, and but it's good that Arista continues to innovate, bring out the hardware that people want. Having lower cost hardware will be a key to them winning in the campus. Obviously, Cisco's got a five year head start with their SD access strategy, and Cisco's Wi Fi um, solution is almost legendary for its ability to be generously priced, shall we say? Generously. Yes. Yeah. A couple other 
points of this announcement. They also announced two new, I guess, applications or features within Cloud Vision. One is IoT Vision. This is a dashboard that pulls together data from wired and wireless uh, APs, the, the Mojo wireless APs from Arista. Plus, it also lets you see all the endpoints connected to the network, so it's one dashboard to see wireless and uh, wired behavior. Uh, they also have a new P-Tracer application that's proximity tracing feature. You can track and record how Wi-Fi devices are moving through a space, and the idea is to aid in contact tracing. You have to do that or designing spaces to better support appropriate social distancing. Uh, links in the show notes if you want to find out more. Ought to know how much time you're spending in the toilet. <laughs> if your bosses are that worried about how your productivity, <laughs> yes, you can right, do that yes. as well. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. Oh, dear. Contact tracing, time in the toilet. Same say. Same say. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Uh, moving on, Google has joined the Linux Foundation Networking Group as a Platinum member. LF Networking is the umbrella group for networking-related open-source projects that include things like Open Daylight, Open vSwitch, Free Range Routing, and many, many more. Uh, we talked earlier about VMware wanting to be into the service provider market and then highlighted how Azure and AWS are well into the service provider market. Uh, this is how Google seems to be going to go to the service provider market. They're going to start supporting some of the projects because the Open Daylight, Open vSwitch, Free Range Routing are all very service provider-centric at this point in time. Yeah. It's not entirely true. That's a gross generalization going very, very fast here. Um, but Google at the same time hasn't always participated as a, uh, a valuable partner in open source. They recently we had a dust-up where they decided to put Kubernetes and Istio and those types of things under a different license. They wanted to maintain some level of control of their open source in inverted commas project and took away the Apache 2 licensing. So it remains to be seen how that plays out. It is odd to think that um, Google hasn't actually done much for networking in open source compared to anybody else. So I just wanted to highlight that for anybody who's interested. All right. Uh, there's a new government report from the UK saying that Huawei has failed to improve its software engineering processes to improve code quality and reduce the risk of security flaws. We did a big piece on this, I think, late last year, uh, where we talked about, I outlined the case that Huawei's biggest weakness is one, poor quality code through an immature organization and a lack of technical capabilities, and two, on-site staff members who are fixing the code that is poor quality and they become an insider threat um, angle. That's my point has always been is I don't believe that Huawei is actually putting bugs into the code. That's not to say that they aren't, but I think uh, insert injecting backdoors into code uh, when you're being scrutinized is probably not a good idea, one. Right. And two, <laughs> it's really, really difficult to do and not break your code. So I think it's much more likely that you'd have an insider threat from having people, but nobody wants to mention that. Uh, but this report at the end of the day is basically a way for the UK government to say, well, we, we've got reasons to invite you to not to participate in our network. It's national competitiveness, and if your product is not up to snuff, we shouldn't be using it, blah, blah, blah. Politics, politics, politics. Yes. I would also like to see a competitive report uh, from the likes of about the likes of Cisco and all these Nokia, providers. Ericsson, I'm pretty yes. sure. I'm pretty sure they're probably just as bad. Yeah, there's definitely something to that. Uh, Huawei gets the attention because it's a Chinese company, but software quality is an issue regardless of the vendor. For in most cases. All right, uh, a couple more stories. The U.S. Labor Department is providing $150 million in grants to U.S. companies to invest in worker training in key areas, including IT, cybersecurity, and advanced manufacturing. Uh, this was interesting in the sense that we've talked earlier about the U.S. government making decisions to exclude uh, H-1B workers, and that was most often from outsourcing companies, whether they come from India, the Philippines, or Pakistan, or a range of different companies. Mm -hmm. And that now leaves the U.S. with a situation where they're short on technology workers, this H-1B, One Workforce Grant Program, will give up to 30 grants to training organizations to upskill U.S. citizens. Um, on one hand, I want to, you know, Kieran McCarthy from the Register has picked up on a viable government response. On the other hand, $150 million is almost nothing in terms of the scope of the entire U.S. technology market. Yes. And 30 grants to training organizations is a really, really small or limited to response to this problem. It's going to take several years for people to spin up to the levels of technical competence needed to cover the gaps for where these outsourcing contracts and the way they brought in people to do work. On the bright side, good times for people who are listening to the podcast because you've got skills, you've got to know how to exploit them. Go out there and get that pay rise. <laughs> if you got the skills, it's good news for you. Hey, what do you think, Keith? You reckon that's a good, the right way out? I think that's the right way out. Might take advantage of the situation. That wraps up the news. Keith, thanks for adding your commentary and analysis today. Where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on the internet at CTO Advisor is the Twitter handle, and the CTOAdvisor.com is the website. Look out the next couple of weeks for a re, uh, remodeled website.
Oh, fantastic. All right, stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with NetMotion on secure remote access. That's coming right up. Welcome to the Packet Pushers Tech Byte podcast. It's 15 minutes of the intersection of technology and business. Today's topic is integrated remote access with sponsored NetMotion. We're going to discuss how NetMotion brings together traditional VPNs and the software-defined perimeter. Our guest is Mike Spence, systems engineer at NetMotion. Mike, welcome to the podcast. To get us started, how are you defining the software-defined perimeter and also zero-trust network access, which are two terms being used quite a lot these days? Yes, I mean, software-defined perimeters is really a, a terminology that we are we are using now as a way of creating sort of a one-to-one relationship between a user device and the resources that they should be accessing uh, inside or outside um, a corporate network. It's really something that's come in, into play since the shift from office-based networking into remote networking, mm. where the checks and balances you had around your, your network perimeter, you know, the standard web filters and proxy services, um, and also the physical checks that you had when you would, you know, you'd go into your office, you have an ID card, you've got to go mm. to a desk, you've got to go through security, yeah, yeah. Have, have, have really been watered down a little bit by people working remotely. You're now on networks you don't control. You don't know what the access security is on those networks. People can be connecting to hotspots. So, you know, software-defined perimeters are SDPs um, and what we call zero trust network access or ZTNA are really sort of two two sides of the same coin. Really, I think that the challenge here is that most often we used to have an idea that a network was a physical thing. So when you plugged into the campus, network, that was your yeah. permission. That was the zero trust. If you could plug a cable into a switch, zero trust, right? Correct. Uh, if you could connect to the Wi-Fi and it was usually just a username and a password and then we had smarter ways of authenticating to the Wi-Fi and that was some trust but still fundamentally zero trust. But I think the transition to a software-defined perimeter is a reflection of the fact that people are no longer inside the physical bounds where there's a corporate Wi-Fi or where there's a campus network that has a physical element to it. So people could be anywhere on the internet. They could be at Starbucks. They could be at home. They could be using their neighbor's Wi-Fi, you know, whatever it takes. And I think the zero trust aspect is you don't trust the network because it's a shared public network and you have no way of validating. There's no other checks because normally to get into a branch to connect to the Wi-Fi, You've got to be near the branch or inside the branch. Or if you're connected to the campus, you've got to be physically inside. So you were relying, zero trust says, all of those trust elements that you used to have were removed. Correct, correct. I mean, you, you, you could go even one stage further with, with some people using BYO, using machines, using devices mm-hmm. that have got um, very little in the way of, of corporate uh, governance over them. You know, not, yeah. not perhaps full BYOD because that was an entirely different entirely different section. But certainly there's more in the way of people using that home networking kit that hasn't potentially been been built, authorized, and distributed by a corporation. Yeah, for sure. So software-defined perimeter is the second part of this. Let's uh, Now, obviously, everybody's doing software-defined. Uh-uh. Th- to me, the immediate reaction is there's some sort of centralized software controlling what happens at the edge. So policy, privileges, that sort of thing. Exactly. There are multiple architectures in SDP. There's a couple of ways. You can have it centralized, you can have it decentralized. And um, a lot of the, the cloud access services that you'll, you'll see, see out there tend to work on a, a centralized model, which means that if I want to get somewhere, if I want to get back inside my network, if I want to access a cloud service, I have to send that data to that centralized service and mm. allow that service to, to effectively say yes or no. So this is the old VPN concentrator idea. I create a centralized VPN and it goes to a certain point and I know exactly where that point is. Exactly. Except you've got you've got these things running up as as hosted services now. So you know VPN as a service or a VPN as a service or security as a service almost. We we do things slightly different with the platform in NetMotion, whereby we we decentralize that decision making process. Mm-hmm. It's it's a, it looks like a VPN. If you were to architect out the solution, it looks like a VPN, it smells like a VPN. Effectively, it's a tunnel, but the policy decision gets taken by the client. Uh, so we, I always thought a VPN was just a cloud on a diagram. You know, you put a little person and then you draw a line. In. <laughs> I get your point, though. What you're saying there is that in a normal VPN solution, everything is centralized. And perhaps the way to define a software-defined perimeter is you've got a cloud control plane, just like you do with other software-defined uh-uhs. And the actual policies devolve to the local client. 
So there's some sort of agent on there which does inspection, rules. How's that work? Exactly, exactly. We, we, we do have a sort of central policy management engine that would sit, you know, in the cloud. It sits, it sits behind the, the corporate firewalls. Um, but the policy decisions are taken by the client themselves. Now, the, the beauty around... Um, the, the the platform that that we that we have is the granularity of those policies, the ability to define what a device and user can do, where they can access, and and how they can access it, right down to an individual port level. We can we can talk about split tunneling and, and denying access of. of of packets originating from an, an individual application, huh. yet allowing or tunneling different packets from the same app. Nice. So if you're thinking of a VPN in the old IPSEC model, you, it was all would go down the tunnel except Correct. for certain defined, you'd had to match an, an access list. Well, obviously, you get matching an access list for Azure or Office 365 or, you know, something, something is not very practical in an era of SaaS. So really what you want to say is my policy says user can access uh, Salesforce, yes. you know, or, or whatever it is, and somehow um, NetMotion takes care of that for me. Correct, correct. I mean, we we can go one stage further now. We can we can actually take in the cloud in the cloud um, hybrid models where we see most customers are sitting right now. Most of our most of our customers are have left behind that pure play VPN. There's you know nobody realistically um, is looking at having nothing in the cloud. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. We also at the other end of the extreme see that there are not many customers who are cloud only. Somebody yes. still has legacy applications somewhere. Now, that could be that they are um, uh, vertical-specific applications, financial yeah. services, legal sectors where they've got practice <laughs> management, that sort of thing. So does this mean with the client on the endpoint, if I want to have a traditional VPN connection back to my corporate office where I'm accessing a traditional application, a financial services application, whatever, I can do that at the same time where I can also have a connection, again, from the same endpoint going out to a cloud service like Office 365, and it's not... Uh, tunneling back to the data precisely. center and back out again. Absolutely precisely. That's exactly mm. how the solution works. We, we we can make a decision on any packet that leaves the device, and we mm. give it three options. We either tunnel it, as in traditional VPN. We can split tunnel it, send it outside direct to the cloud resource, or we can stop it leaving. We can drop that packet mm. from the device from the device level. And the beauty of it is, you mentioned Office 365 there, we can also hook into existing conditional access policies that people may have had in place because the only way to get secure access to somebody's cloud resources was to do things like restricted IP, whereby mm. you know, your, your packets, even though they're going to the cloud, have to originate from inside your network. Now we can we can put rules in place that say fine we can do that. Well, let's send the authentication traffic via those restricted IPs. But for video conferencing, voice and video traffic, for example, I, I, do I really want to hairpin that in and out? Right. Do, mm-hmm. I, do I want to be saturating my internet links, my my external links that were never scaled up for all of this remote <laughs> remote traffic? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of customers these days don't use the PABX and head office. They use a uh, an internet hosted PABX system. You know, some sort of SaaS call thing, and you can make your calls in and out from that on yep. the corporate service. So it gets. I guess the flip side then, as soon as we start talking about VoIP, the next question anybody asks me is visibility and analytics. Yeah. Uh, what about what are you doing in that space? Can you actually give me some some visibility as well? Yeah, this again, this is I keep using the word sort of elegance, which is quite quite it's quite a nice word. Um, but it, this is what the <laughs> rather has rather. To do. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 as you can tell, I have become very British. Yes. <laughs> um, but no, we we can we can actually do this, and the way that the solution works because it is a client server because it still has that old um, or legacy VPN architecture to it where there is a service sitting at the back end. There is a service that may be, may be sitting in cloud, but we have the tunnel and, and we keep the tunnel. What we do is, is use the policy to decide what needs to come down the tunnel. Yeah. If I wanted to go to a cloud first world, I can do that without any problem. I can just put a, put a rule set in place that says yeah. bypass the tunnel for all my traffic. So if my accounting, if you actually manage to migrate your accounting system into AWS or Google Cloud and, you know, using just lift and shift, right, then you can actually just tell the client to go there and and the policy is centrally defined and away it goes. But do I get analytics and visibility on the flows? Can Can I see when it's performing well? Can I not see it? Exactly. But this is why we still have the tunnel. 
So the tunnel still exists whether I'm routing application traffic down it or not. But we use that tunnel connection to collect analytics from the end user device. So we can see things like destinations. We can see the application usage over time. And then we can use that analytics to, to actively feed back into the policy engine so you know that you're building policies for, for, for what users are actually doing, not what you think they should be doing. Huh. Um, huh. It also gives us some, some very, very good insights into the, the app um, and the, the devices themselves. Because hmm. we can not just look at the traffic details. We're more than just this VPN client on the device. Um, we're, we're looking at the radio stats. We can see what networks people are connecting to. So I yeah. know if you're connecting to Starbucks or if I know if you're connecting to... It doesn't matter where you're connected to. The point is that when you're talking to the operator from the hell desk, you are able to help them. And you're saying, are you supposed to be connected to this Wi-Fi? Or Correct. Exactly. Mm. I can I can look at what's happened. I can even go down to the level of looking at what the signal strength is on your on, on the radio. So mm. if somebody phones up and says I had a problem yesterday afternoon at two thirty, um, the normal response is going to be, "Well, what did you do? Oh, I just clicked on OK and away I went. Can you tell me what went wrong? <laughs> yeah, why are you no. ringing me? How am I supposed to fix this now? But, well, you're, can, but you're saying can you can now. do some sort of replay there. You exactly. Can actually... We we can store this data. We can actually go back and look at what the device was doing, where it was. Were you in an area of low coverage? But more importantly, that we can run diagnostics on that connection. We can see from a step by step basis that what's going on is, what well, is it the network? Do you have a network connection available to you? Yes, right. Can we see a point on the internet? Yes. Okay, can we now see the connection point you're going to be going to? No, right. Okay, so it's not your network that's the problem. Your service is the problem. Mm. Uh, and it allows yeah. you to start to pinpoint that in a much more effective way, irrespective of the network the user is actually on. Okay, so there's three things we've talked about. We've talked about zero trust networking, this idea of getting outside the boundaries of the traditional world. We talked about software-defined perimeter. There's some analytics capability here for the day two functionality. What about what, what are you seeing from customers in regards to remote access? Have you got some some lovely customer stories or success stories? Yeah, we we do. I mean, these obviously, are, unfortunately, for for your your international listeners, are going to be very UK centric. Oh, that's all um, right, but. <laughs> Yeah, working with working with a lot of UK companies over here. I mean, one of the ones I, I mentioned earlier was was things like um, internet link saturation. We have a very large utilities customer here in the UK who overnight went from went from um, a call centre of five hundred people working in one building to mm -hmm. all of a sudden five hundred people working from home. Yeah. Okay, now we managed to route out all the PBX traffic, all the uh, the soft phone and VoIP traffic to to their individual digital uh, laptops are now working from home. But the problem was they had that traditional VPN setup, whereby all of their network traffic was being hairpinned back in. It was coming back in through to the main network to do their customer mm -hmm. relationship man and, and management solutions. And they were running their internet links at around 90% capacity. Huh. Those links and of course, you can't run, just go out and get more bandwidth added. It's a multi-month process. Et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Exactly. So we, we basically worked with them. Um, and we put these policies in place. We, we broke out that unnecessary traffic. We looked at the traffic flows. We had the analytics to say, what are people actually using? How much data is coming from these users on these devices at these times? What can we break out? What needs to come, come out here? What needs to go, go direct to cloud? We wrote a nice little policy set for them. And as a result, yeah, all of their, all of their um, voice and video, internal voice and video traffic, not the PBX stuff, because that still needed to come, come out of the network. But mm -hmm. you know, when they were doing uh, group video calls, Send that to the cloud. Yeah, I can still track yeah. it. I can still, I've still got the audit on it. And I think the biggest thing about this is that I've got the visibility. I can, because I have the analytics, I'm not guessing. I'm not Correct. saying if I did this, I will get that. Correct. I'm, I'm seeing the data and saying, yeah, I can see that 20% of the traffic here is could be sent directly to the cloud, and that would instantly solve it for this user, or you know, and then prove it across the across the estate. Exactly. Exactly. It, it allows it allows you to 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 send more things to the cloud with confidence uh -huh. yes. because you're not losing the visibility of it. And if you look at it from a threat detection standpoint, where you know, you'd normally be trying to tunnel um, internet browsing traffic, you know, you want people's browser traffic to come back through your network because the only point of of of, of uh, analytics of that traffic is tends to be you either your proxies or your web filters. Right. 
um, get that flexibility. If I can still show that, okay, I'm going to split tunnel my traffic that I don't, that I don't need, but I'm still going to log it. I'm still going to say that you are, oh, if you spent, you know, you spent six hours today streaming videos from you, from, from YouTube. <laughs> I can still do that, but I don't, I don't have to bring that traffic back in for the basis of auditing it. And that sounds crazy, but it's true. Well, Mike, we've run out of time, but if folks want to find out where they can get more information, where would you send them? Well, we do have an SDP report um, on our site. If you want to go to netmo.io forward slash packet pushers, and you can register and download a copy. All right. That's netmo.io slash packet pushers. Get your copy of the SDP report. We'll also have that link in our show notes that accompany this podcast. Thanks, Mike, for joining us and to NetMotion for being a sponsor. Sponsors do make it possible for us to produce nerdy technical content multiple times a week and keep it free for everyone. Speaking of which, you can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog. That's at PacketPushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at PacketPushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.